Amen. Well, good morning. Good to see everybody. Grab your Bibles. You can uh, turn to the book of Acts, which is in your New Testament. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. And before I dive into the message, uh, last week we highlighted these journals, these ESV Acts journals. So there's a stack of them, I think, still on the, the bar in the foyer. I want to encourage you to grab one of these if you haven't grabbed one already. Uh, use it in your personal study. Use it as we're studying on Sunday morning through this book, just as a blessing for you to to study through. Uh, you can donate a couple bucks if you want, but we bought them with the intent for everyone to use them. So please scoop one up um, as you're here this morning. We'd love for you to have one. And do me a favor and put your name in it if you get one. I can just envision like 10 of them being left behind and people arguing about whose notes are whose and looking at each other's diaries. It'd just be embarrassing to just put your name in it. Avoid all that craziness, all right? <clears throat> Let's jump into the book of Acts. Uh, most of us at this point in our lives have had jobs. Uh, some of the young people excluded, but when you get a job, you get a, if you get a good job with a good boss, good company, you get a, a pretty decent job description. You know what it is that you're called to do, what your responsibility is. And the book of Acts, in particular Acts 1-8, provides essentially a mission statement for the people of God. That we're going to hear from God this morning what his vision and mission is for his people as he sets us out to be his witnesses throughout the entire globe. And so what I want to do is I want to invite you to kind of put a finger in the, the beginning of the book of Luke. It's two books to your left from Acts. You'll see why in just a second. Uh, we'll go to Luke's uh, chapter 1 here in just a moment. But I want us to read Acts chapter 1. We're going to go through verses, uh, verse 1 through 11 today as we launch into this year-long study through the book of Acts. So join with me in the book of Acts chapter 1, verse 1. We'll read these 11 verses and then we'll see what the Lord has for us. This is God's word. It says in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. All right, so the very first six words of Acts immediately force us to connect to kind of a broader body of writing. Because as you probably saw, Luke, who's the author of the book of Acts, says in the first book. So now I want you to shoot to your left to Luke chapter 1. Because we're just going to see some common language here and it'll hopefully connect the dots as we understand the framework of this book. But in Luke chapter 1, so this is one of the four gospel accounts, the accounts of Jesus' earthly life, ministry, his death and resurrection. Luke writes one of those four accounts. 
And he says this in the introduction to his gospel. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So you might have seen some common words, a common name. Luke, Luke in his gospel is writing basically volume one of a two-volume set. Acts is a second volume of his writing. It's kind of a continuation of the narrative, the historical narrative he puts together in the gospel of Luke. And he's writing it to this person, to this man named Theophilus. So what we know about Luke is actually very little. Uh, Paul refers to him in Colossians 4 as the beloved physician. So Luke was a doctor. He's an educated man and became a historian by way of writing uh, much of the New Testament. It's interesting because Luke is the only non-Jewish writer in the New Testament. And because he wrote Luke and Acts and was a partner to Paul, you could say that Luke, Luke contributed to the the writing of the majority of the New Testament. Pretty significant influence on what we have as the New Testament in our, in our Bibles. So Sir William Ramsey, I remember hearing this as a pretty young believer years ago, and I pray it would encourage you like it encouraged me. As we read our Bibles, it's, it's so helpful to know that, that the history of the Bible is reliable. And so Sir William Ramsey, who was a Scottish archaeologist and scholar back in the 1850s and early 20th century, He was a a New Testament critic and skeptic. So he didn't believe that the New Testament was history and was reliable. And so that was his posture when he started. And so much like C.S. Lewis, if you know C.S. Lewis's story, or maybe a modern day example would be Lee Strobel, as he set out to disprove the Bible, particularly the New Testament, he actually came to faith in the process because he began to believe in how reliable it was. And this is what he says. So he started a skeptic, and the, the way he went about trying to debunk the New Testament was to study the book of Acts. So he wanted to poke holes in the history and geography of the book of Acts, and in trying to do that, he found it to be overwhelmingly reliable. And this is what he said about Luke. He said, Luke is a historian of the first rank. And so as you read the book of Acts, it should encourage you as a Bible-believing Christian, if we believe this is God's word, that it's historically reliable. It has been attested to by skeptics and believers throughout, throughout the ages, all right? So Luke's writings were first-rate history, but they weren't just mere history. His writing was evangelistic. He was, written to point, he was writing to point people to Jesus. He wanted people to encounter the Savior. He dedicated both volumes to this Man Theophilus. So we don't know a whole lot about Theophilus, but he appears to be a Roman noble. So I don't know how many of you 90s children watched Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, but the most excellent doesn't mean some casual introduction to Theophilus. In antiquity, to say most excellent would only be attributed to someone in nobility. So, so Theophilus appears to be some Roman official who came to faith, might have even supported Luke and his historical ventures investigating and chronicling the, the ministry and life of Jesus and the, the work of Jesus in the church later on. So Theophilus appears to be a believer in, in Luke chapter 1. You might have 
Remember this we just read? He says, I'm writing these things to you that you might have certainty, conviction, that you might be convinced of the things that you have learned. So he's delivering this two-volume set, it seems, to Theophilus. And so if you can kind of picture, Luke is like a first-century investigative reporter. And just think about this. I, I hadn't really thought about this until this week when I was studying. But because Luke, in the first century, would have had the ability to, and some people have actually said he did this. There's no proof that he did. But he could have actually interviewed Jesus' mother, Mary. You can kind of picture Luke traveling to interview all the different characters, particularly the mother of Jesus, because his account of Jesus' birth is the most detailed by far in the Gospels. But you can picture them with a, picture him with a, a pen in hand and a pad writing down these different stories of history. You might imagine him talking to the, the men who, he, who, who encountered Jesus on the road to Emmaus. These two men who were journeying along, they were discouraged because Jesus had died. They were hoping he was the consolation of Israel. And you can, you can imagine them sharing with him the story of how they encountered Jesus. And they, were, they shared like, weren't our hearts burning within us as Jesus explained all the, the scriptures to us? So Luke goes through an incredible amount of detail in chronicling the history of Jesus' ministry. And as Luke, the gospel of Luke is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. That's what he says in Acts chapter 1. In a very real way, Acts is the continuation of Jesus' ministry from heaven. So as we're going to see today, the last recorded words of Jesus on earth, he gives the commission to the church and then continues his ministry through God's spirit and through the apostles. So some people have debated over the years as to, as to what is Acts. Is it the Acts of Jesus? Is it the Acts of the Holy Spirit? Is it the Acts of the apostles? The Acts of Paul? The answer is probably rightly the first three all combined. It's the acts of Jesus from heaven through the Holy Spirit in his apostles in proclaiming and advancing the kingdom. And that's what we're going to see. And, and it's not just some disconnected chronicle of history. So for us, if you're a Christian in this room, you're a part of this story. And this is actually your job description just like it was for the apostles when they received it just before Jesus went into heaven. So I pray that we'll receive it just like that. And John Stott commented on the continuation of Jesus' ministry in this way. He says, all other religions regard their founder as having completed his ministry during his lifetime. But Luke says Jesus only began his ministry on earth, exercised personally and publicly, which was then followed by his ministry from heaven, exercised through his spirit and through his people. And we're right in line with those apostles who have sought to make Jesus known from that point on. So in verse 2 of what we just read in Acts chapter 1, it talks about how Jesus for 40 days, when he rose from the dead, he appeared and taught for 40 days. It's a pretty unique picture. Luke is the only one that says that there was a 40-day period where Jesus appeared to various people. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about how he delivered the gospel to the Corinthian church and how Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Peter, to Cephas, and then to the 12. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and to the apostles. 
And he, he said something. Jesus was speaking about something in particular for those 40 days. So God's word, for whatever reason, God determined to give us the note that Jesus was on the earth 40 days after he rose from the grave. And the only thing that it gives us that he taught was the kingdom of God. And so what I want to do today, and it's really in the text, it's not me just conjuring something up, is is we're going to try to understand what does it mean that Jesus taught the kingdom of God? What does that have to do with us? And what isn't the kingdom of God? And we're hopefully going to draw some things out this morning. And so as Jesus, when he ascended, he said that power is going to come upon you just a few days from now. You can kind of imagine the disciples, and they have this kind of cliffhanger given to them. They're expecting when the the, the power of God comes, something substantial is going to happen politically and geographically for Israel. And so he kind of leaves them hanging a little bit. He's like, in a few days, just a little while, there's power that's going to come. And that's what leads them to ask the question that they ask. And their question reveals that they didn't quite get it. They didn't quite understand what the kingdom of God was. And so let's, let's look at it together. Verse 6. So so when they had come together, they asked him, they asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. So the fact that they said at this time means that the disciples very much believe that when the Spirit of God came, the power came, at that moment, what was going to happen is God was going to restore this physical earthly kingdom of Israel at that moment. At this time, is what they say. They, they're expecting a right now geopolitical kingdom. And Jesus' response is, it's not for you to know. It doesn't say it's not going to happen ultimately. He said it's not for you to know the time, place, the seasons, where ultimately God's kingdom will be finalized. Some people use the word consummated. And so here's the picture. I don't want to get lost in the weeds here, but I do want to explain a couple of things. Because when Jesus came the first time, he, he began... Some people use the word inaugurated. He began the kingdom of God, ushered it in. And there will be a day when he comes again, his second coming, where it will be finalized. It will be consummated. And what the disciples believe was going to happen is that the moment the spirit of God came, it was going to be finalized. Jesus is like, no, you're not going to know that day. But there's a whole lot of literature out there. There's a whole lot of preachers that spend a whole lot of time trying to figure out when it is that Jesus is going to come back. We should be concerned and study end times, but we shouldn't be paralyzed trying to figure out the timing. And not the least of reasons because the Bible says that not even Jesus knows. Okay, so if Jesus doesn't know, you're probably not going to figure it out. That's just what I'm going to guess, right? Not even the angels or the son know. Only the father knows the timing of his return. But the religious leaders ask the question too. They ask Jesus, when is the kingdom going to come? It's a legitimate and good question. When is this kingdom going to arrive And here's what Jesus said, and this is going to kind of push us to places that I think are a little bit more practical. Jesus responding to them in Luke chapter 17, he says this. Again, their question is, when the kingdom of God would come? And Jesus says, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. All right, so just get your bearings. Jesus in the flesh, is preaching. They ask when the kingdom is coming. He says, it's right in your midst. It's here. 
In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verse 15, he says, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. It's now. The kingdom of God is now in the sense that Jesus and his arrival ushered in his kingdom. What's the kingdom of God? It's the place where God is king. It's the place where Jesus rules over a particular people. And in his first arrival, he ushered in that kingdom and began to collect, as it were, people into his good kingdom. But the disciples thought that there was going to be some restoration. The idea of restoration, you can probably picture it, you've probably done it with furniture. You take something old and you make it new. You kind of polish it up. You make it new. But you grab something that used to be and you make it new. And Jesus is shattering those categories And he's saying, no, it's not going to be the old kingdom made new. It's going to be a brand new thing. It's a spiritual kingdom, not an earthly geopolitical kingdom. A spiritual here and now kingdom that breaks the boundaries of culture beyond a nationalistic kingdom where ethnic Israel enjoyed freedom and prominence. It's going to go beyond race and ethnicity. And calls every, this kingdom calls men everywhere to repent and believe in the gospel. That's the type of kingdom that Jesus brought in. And the spiritual kingdom of God is at hand in the midst of us. And so the kingdom of God, this is one way to understand it. It's my best short attempt at a definition. The kingdom of God consists of the people of God under the rule of God by the power of God. The kingdom of God consists of, it's made up of the people of God, under the rule of God, by the power of God, the collection of believers for all times, submitted joyfully to the rule of King Jesus. That's the kingdom of God. It'll be finalized one day. and We'll all be together. This ragtag bunch of people from all nations and tribe and tongues and languages will be there together, finally in this final form of the kingdom that's been consummated, it's been finalized. Calvin, John Calvin said it this way, talking about the church's responsibility as the visible expression of the invisible kingdom. Here's what John Calvin said about this. He says, it's the task of the visible church to make the invisible kingdom of Christ visible, to show people what it would be like to live in a commonwealth ruled by Jesus. Do you feel the gravity of that? Real people, Christians on this earth, given the the real responsibility to to manifest, to display in the world the reality of the invisible kingdom where Jesus rules and reigns over his people. Does the world see that in us? Do Do they see us ruled by King Jesus as the one who is good and gracious and sovereign? Do they see us look to him for security? My concern is that even this week, There's been distortion of what that looks like among professing evangelicals. Where we find security, what the kingdom actually is and what it isn't. Does the world see a people joyfully ruled by King Jesus in their hearts and lives? Does the world see the visible church trusting in the rule of Jesus and not clamoring to find security in some other kingdom or king or ruler or prince? Psalm 146, "Let let not your trust be in princes but trust in the one true God. And could it be that Christians in America have a distorted understanding of the kingdom of God, much like the disciples did? We're trying to somehow pick up the pieces of what we think is some earthly kingdom that we've created. 
maybe with nationalistic or geographic and political boundaries. I really wrestled with this part of my message. Last night I went to bed and I, I, was, I was disturbed by the depictions of Christianity earlier in the week on Wednesday in the Capitol. And I, and I want to just, I want to push into this a little bit because there's a, there's a secular per- periodical that I think gives us a little bit of a glimpse as to what might happen to the onlooking world as they see believers giving into distortions as to what the kingdom actually is. Let me build this out just for a moment. So the Atlantic Magazine, that's been around for some 160 years. It's a secular periodical publishing platform. They have an article that's titled, The Christian Insurrection. Just wrap your head around that. The Christian Insurrection, okay? Uh, There's all sorts of pictures in it that at best are extremely confusing. But the subtitle is this. Many of those who mobbed the Capitol on Wednesday claim to be enacting God's will and doing it in Jesus' name. And that is true. That's part of what happened Wednesday in the Capitol. There are many good believers obedient to God who didn't do that that were there, exercising their rights as American citizens to protest. That's fine. But those who marched into the Capitol, killing one police officer, losing all sense of law, doing that in Jesus' name, at the very best, it's incredibly confusing to a world that watches flags flying with Trump 2020 and Jesus 2020 and the flag of Israel and a shofar, which is a Jewish worship symbol of victory, all in the name of Donald Trump. Church family, at the very best, it's utterly confusing to a world that doesn't understand the kingdom of God. And I think we have to be incredibly careful that we don't, and and my concern is that the evangelical church has somehow kind of co-opted Jesus into the Republican Party or over and against Donald Trump, and somehow they're they're part of the same, two cars of the same train. I just wonder if Jesus is looking at this madness And just saying, not so with you. This is not the kingdom of God. Not so with my people. And I was disturbed to see some of those images. And quite honestly, yesterday, someone I care about, someone in my family, threw this article as if to throw it in my face. said, defund the church. And it was this very article. Now, there's a whole lot of reasons why there's resistance to the church. But I would say this, it doesn't have to be because we make things confusing. It doesn't have to be because we confuse political kingdoms with the kingdom, the spiritual kingdom of God and the church in America at this moment in time has not done a very good job of that. And so my encouragement to us as believers is to be very careful not to somehow confuse the kingdom of God with some earthly kingdom as massive. And and being a believer... Believing in the gospel has massive implications on political and social views. It does. Election integrity should matter to believers. It's okay to be upset about evidence of that. But to do what happened on Wednesday is inexcusable and unbiblical. And it confuses a world that, that looks on already with a skepticism on the Lord Jesus and what he's done to his people. We will be some story of what they see about the kingdom of God. I just think we all need to hear that. We cannot conflate or combine the kingdom of God and our nation or political party into one and the same thing. They're not the same thing. 
And we must never confuse our witness to the world by giving loyalty to earthly leaders that only Jesus deserves. And so Jesus responds to this question. It is so relevant to this moment. I didn't plan this. I wrestled with how to, it's right here in the text. God's people getting confused about what the kingdom is and what it's not. And he responds to their question with saying, you're not going to know the time, but here's what you will know. You're not going to know when I'm going to return, but here's what I want you to be concerned about. I want you to be concerned about doing what I've asked you to do until I come back. Don't be concerned about when I return. Just do your job until I return. And that seems to be the thrust of everything else that he shares. He talks about power, the spirit of God and power. And to speak of an employee that has a good job description, like as a manager in the workplace for a number of years with State Farm, one of the things I was responsible to do is to make sure that that my employees, the ones who reported to me, had everything that they needed to get their job done. They didn't lack resources to do their job. And blessed be God, he gives us a huge responsibility, but he gives us divine assistance. He gives us the power we need. You will receive power, and you will be my witnesses everywhere. You're going to take my name. You're going to make image bearers because that's my purpose for you in life. It's the reason that I've saved you. So Jesus, the ascended and coronated king, rules over his people, fills them with Holy Spirit power to do their job, to be his witnesses. And essentially saying, don't invest the time trying to figure out when I'm going to come back. Just be invested in doing what I've asked you to do until I return. So there's an implication here. It's implied that as people, we don't have the power to do what God has asked us to do. He says, I'm going to give you power implies that we didn't have it before. We didn't have what we need, but Jesus says, I'm going to give you everything you need to to walk in this identity. And that's exactly what it is. Being a witness is not just merely activity for Christians. It's fundamental to who we are. You will receive power. You will be my witnesses. It's an indicative, which means it describes who we are. It's not a command to pursue. You will receive power. You will be my witnesses. You are, in fact, my witnesses. And we'll circle back to that here in just a moment. But the the power is to, to witness, to proclaim, not just to possess some ability or energy, but to do it to the end of witnessing to the saving, gracious power of this good and gracious king who has saved us. And so this idea of witness has multiple layers to it. I'll share just a couple. So the apostles themselves, the disciples, the one who, ones who walked with Jesus, saw firsthand his ministry, they had a unique position as witnesses. You're going to hear that word come up as we study through the book of Acts. They witnessed his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ministry, his preaching, and they, they call themselves witnesses, those who attest to what they have seen and heard. But the privilege and responsibility of being a witness doesn't just stop with the apostles. It falls to us. We have God's word made sure to us, revealing to us what Jesus has said and done, his, his words, his works, his ways, that we might go and witness to the world and tell them the same. And the book of Acts is a chronicle of the church's obedience to that not perfect. We, don't, we shouldn't look in Acts for like the perfect church, but we do see a, a historical chronology of how the church obeyed this call to be witnesses. Tony Morita and his Commentary on Acts said it this way. It says, The apostles certainly led the church, but the gospel advanced largely through the words and deeds of unordained and uneducated people, informal missionaries. 
That's you. That's me. Maybe we have some education. Certainly, mostly unordained. Given this incredible responsibility and privilege to make Christ known. It continues through us. So witnessing as an action involves telling people about Jesus, who he is, what he's done, but it's, as I mentioned, not just an activity, it's an identity. And there's three kind of concentric circles that Jesus says, you're going to be my witnesses. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, where you are right now, in Judea and Samaria, kind of the, the circle around Jerusalem and to the end of the earth, which is why we're planned in Bergah. We joke about that with Jay. It's like, to the end of the earth we go. Plant a church in Bergah. But everywhere, we're right where we are, our workplace, our neighborhoods, our, our world, in our Jerusalem, we want to be witnesses. In Judea and Samaria, our city, our state, our region, and then certainly to the end of the earth, we want to be those who take the gospel. And that's how the book is actually structured. So the book of Acts, chapter 1 through 7, is how the church is birthed in Jerusalem, and it seems like, leading up to chapter 7, they were comfortable staying in Jerusalem. But if you've known God long enough, you know God will accomplish his purposes, even if he has to light a fire under you. So in chapter 7, the first martyr comes, Stephen, persecution comes in Jerusalem. What happens? The gospel is going to Judea and Samaria, just like God said it would. And then chapters 13 through 28 is the story of how it went to the Gentile, non-Jewish world. So the whole book bears out this echo of Jesus's command. And I would say something here for us as well, is that you think of your own life, your Jerusalem for the apostles. If you can put yourself creatively in their shoes for a moment, having walked with Jesus, having seen him crucified, some of them at the foot of the cross as he was crucified, hearing his last words, confused and discouraged by his death because they didn't connect the dots as to what was going to happen next. <clears throat> And you can imagine the ministry call to Jerusalem is among those who crucified Christ, who opposed Jesus unto his death. And what we're going to see in Acts is like there are moments, Peter's sermon, he preaches as if looking in the face of the very people who crucified Jesus. He says, by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, Jesus was crucified at your hands. That's where they're doing ministry. That's where they're witnessing. Isn't it? very place where Jesus was crucified. And Judea and Samaria was a region that rejected Jesus' ministry when he was walking the earth. And to the ends of the earth, some Jewish people at that point in time believed that the, the world itself was just fodder for the fires of hell, unworthy of inclusion in the family of God. So here's what I'm saying by this. How does this relate to us? It's like, do we believe and do we see ourselves as a part of seeing the gospel go to places that are Opposed to us, opposed to God, unlikely even. That we see is in our humanity, we never say it out loud, but like, I, I can't imagine this person's ever gonna come to believe in Jesus. Like, just look at them. Look at where they're from. Look at what they look like physically. Most of us are socially aware enough not to say those things out loud, but I wonder how much we believe them. So Jesus says, you're going you're gonna to go. You're going to go here, you're going to go there, and you're going to go everywhere. You're going to take, take my name with you. You're going to bear my witness to the world 
around you. And witness, notably, is, is the same Greek word that we get our word martyr from. It's actually translated, I think, three times in the New Testament as the word martyr. If you've never heard that word, a martyr is someone who's died for their faith. Stephen is noted as a witness or a martyr in his stoning in Acts chapter 7. So what does that mean? Does that mean we're going to die for our faith? Well, by God's grace, hopefully not. But maybe. Many believers across the world who are suffering because they believe in Jesus. Many who are dying even today because they place their faith in Christ. But I I think the helpful dynamic of this word in this place, you will be my martyrs, my witnesses. At the very least, what we should feel is that the call to make Jesus known is going to be accompanied by some degree of suffering and difficulty. And I think one of our greatest challenges in America, because we don't have persecution, at least not yet, the way the rest of the world does, is that it actually takes away some of the urgency that you you just see shooting out of the church in places where they're squeezed the most because we're comfortable. And comfort, more times than not, leads to apathy. So the call in this text is, remember that you are those who are called to suffer. And maybe in our lives right now, maybe speak to you students for a second. Like in your life, one of the greatest ways you will suffer is social awkwardness and estrangement. You might be that young person who takes your relationship with Jesus seriously. And that's a form of suffering. But is Jesus worth it? Yeah, you bet he is. You bet he is. And for us as adults, we're not immune to that dynamic. Some of the the ways we'll suffer the most in this life is social awkwardness. And it sounds incredibly petty, but that's kind of our cross to bear. We don't want to be that guy or that gal who speaks about Jesus, makes the waves, unsettles relationship, makes our neighbors think we're weird. I'm speaking to myself just like I'm speaking to you. But are we willing to, to be the awkward one because we speak about Christ and what he's done? Are we willing to suffer, as it were, for the, the sake and for the name of Jesus? And I think some of us resist this because we're like, wait a second, you said we were going to receive power. I can't marry power and suffering. Well, it seems to me, notably in Jesus, that he suffered quite a bit and he was powerful. But even beyond that, Paul talks about this in a couple of different places. He actually says to his protege, his understudy Timothy, in his last book before he was executed, before Paul was executed in Rome, He says to Timothy, he says, share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. And I don't know if we have a category for that. That suffering could be accompanied and actually be the the product of power. Join in suffering with me by the power of God. Paul talked about it in Philippians chapter 3. He said, I pray that I might know him, Christ, and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. You will be my witnesses, my martyrs in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the end of the earth. And Acts ends, and we're going to get here eventually, but in Acts chapter 28, it ends with this wonderful picture of Paul. If you read the New Testament at all, you know Paul and his missionary journeys. He wrote 13 letters in the New Testament. But it says this about Paul at the very end of the book of Acts. It says, Paul was proclaiming, so he's in Rome, in prison, getting ready to be executed. 
because of his faith in Christ. He says, Paul was proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. What a picture of, a, of an obedient witness to Christ. Arthur Pearson, who's an author, ended his book with this like, stirring kind of charge to God's people. And I'll close with this in just a couple brief thoughts. He says this. He says, Church of Christ, people of God, the records of these acts, the book of Acts of the Holy Ghost have never reached their completeness. This is the one book which has no proper close because it waits for new chapters to be added so fast and so far as the people of God shall reinstate the blessed spirit of God in his holy seat of control. That we might be ones who continue the work of the church that we're going to see in this book of Acts by way of seating God the Spirit rightly in our lives as the one who rules over us, the one who gives us power to fulfill the very thing that God has created us for and recreated us for. And notably at the end of this section, the disciples are standing there, understandably kind of in wonder and amazement. It says that they went on to worship. I think at the end of Luke, it talks about how they went to Jerusalem, worshiping after Jesus had ascended. But it's interesting to watch because the angels... Look at them as they stare, they gaze into heaven in awe, understandably of what is happening, but they look at him and say, what are you standing there for? Jesus went, he's going to come back just like he, just like he left. Go do your job. Go. Go be his witnesses. That's what he told you to do. Don't just stare into heaven, just waiting for him to return, but be about his business. And I wonder, church family, I'll close with this thought. There will be a day where Jesus will return. And he's not going to come as a suffering servant. He's going to come as a conquering king. He's going to come as a savior of his people to collect us to be in the kingdom finally, once and for all, forever. And I just wonder, the very last words of his on earth, you will be my witnesses. I just wonder if we're going to hear those words again at his return. But it'll be something like this. I gave you power to be my witnesses. Were you my witnesses? I gave you power to do this. This is your identity as my people. Did you do it? Were you my witnesses? And I pray that we would be those people that are in fact his witnesses on this earth. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together and we'll sing one last song to close off. Fathers, we let into your time in the word through that song, um, yet not I, but Christ in me. We know that apart from your power that, that we are feeble at best and we are broken and uh, will not be among those who boldly witness to the, the goodness and grace of Jesus in this world. But with you, what's impossible with men is possible with God. And the very power that we need to fulfill the responsibility and joyful privilege you've given us, you've given us everything we need to do that. And God, I pray as your people in this church, this church that I love, these people that I love, I pray that we wouldn't get confused about what the kingdom is. That we wouldn't try to scramble in this life to somehow see or institute some earthly kingdom when ultimately your kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. It's a, it's a here and now kingdom with your people filled with power, your people under your rule by your power. And so I pray that we be those people about your business. 
And that one day when you do come back, and you will come back, that we hear from your mouth, well done, good and faithful servants. We're not planning churches just because we want to have something on our church resume. We believe the local church is your hope for the nations. And we want to send people because we believe that there are people in Bergaw now and in other places across the world that desperately need the hope of Jesus. And so would you use us to that end? Give us faith where you want us to be involved. Help us to be sacrificial, consistent. Help us to walk in holiness and not confuse the world as to what it means to be a a child and a subject of the king. But the world would rightly see what we are and our faith in Christ with him as our, our good and gracious ruler and your spirit as our power to be different among this world that desperately needs to see the difference that Jesus makes. Make us different. Make us your witnesses, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.